How's everybody doing? Good. Well, let's open with a, a word of prayer. Uh-oh. Oh, well, thank you for bringing them back. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Sovereign God, we approach your throne humbly, but we approach hungrily, seeking to learn who you are, who we are before you. What are we to do before you? What are the tasks that you have set before us? How are we to be your royal priesthood? I pray that you will bless tonight and the nights to come as we study what it means to be your priest. Help us to know better how to serve you. We ask all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay, so tonight we are kicking off our study of the priesthood, which is really a doctrine that we take for granted because it is, it is present from the beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture. And so many people in the Bible that we are extremely familiar with, we overlook the fact that they are priests of God. So he, we, we have been, they were called to be priests, and we have been called to be priests. So, so the, the focal verse for this whole study for the next eight weeks is 1 Peter 2.9, which says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are to be a royal priesthood. That means we are to be priests. Each one of us are to be priests of the king. Who is the king? God is. So we are each to be priests of the king. But what does that mean? So the answer to that question is going to unfold over many weeks. We're not going to answer it tonight, but we're going to get a glimpse of it tonight. If we are to be priests of the king, would it not then be useful for us to define what a priest does? I believe it would be. And a lot of that is going to also unfold as we go through this class. I'm not going to front load you with a bunch of Levitical law. But we'll get there. But a good place to start is Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. Let me turn there. Now, this is in reference to the high priest. Who's the high priest? Jesus. Okay. So we're all on the same page. This is in reference to the high priest, but it's a good working idea of what a priest is to do. And it says, For every high priest is taken from among the people and appointed to represent them before God to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal compassionately with those who are ignorant and erring. And since he also is subject to weakness, and for this reason he is obligated to make sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. And no one assumes this honor on his own initiative, but only when called to it by God, as in fact Aaron was." So, as I said, even though this is referring to the high priest, we can see some priestly attributes being enumerated here. 
So they are called by God. The priest is appointed to represent the people before God. That is key. They offer gifts and sacrifices to God, also essential. And they make sin offerings to God. So there's a lot more to being a priest than just that. But that's a good place to start in understanding what a priest does. Now, when we are called to be a royal priesthood, we are called, in fact, to work towards those things and to do those things. We are to work and serve the one who ultimately will do those things the great high priest. So we are in that priesthood. Now there's a lot of different kinds of priests in the Bible, and we're going to talk about them as we go through it. Who can tell me what some of them are? The Levitical priests, that's a pretty significant one. What's the other significant order of priests? The, the or, priests in the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to address both of those, not tonight, but as we move through this, we're going we're gonna to talk about what each of those is supposed to be doing and why one is greater than the other. Are there other priests mentioned in the Bible? Let's not even talk about pagan priests, just other people who are identified as priests that may be priests of God? Well, he's the first high priest in the Levitical order. So he is. There's, there's several. I mean, who, who's Jethro? Yeah, he was the priest of Midian. He's Moses' father-in-law. But he was a priest who was serving at the foot of Sinai. So he, we don't really know what Jethro was up to, but we know he was a priest. And I can't imagine that he's a pagan priest, given that he is serving at the foot of God's mountain. So, he, you know, there are other priests that we see in Scripture. But what we really want to focus on is, is what is that role? What is the priestly role? What are they doing? What are they called to do? What sets them apart? And how does that show us what we are to do? So the first six classes that we're going to do is going to be tracing priesthood through the Old Testament. In the last few classes, we're going to then transition into the New Testament and pull all of that information together and understand it in light of Hebrews and 1 Peter and so on in, in the New Testament. So we will get there. you got to be patient, though, because there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that's going to be setting all of this up. So just hang in there. It's going to be, I don't know about a long road, but it, I'm gonna, there's going to be a lot of stuff to consider. So, so that being said, what's a good place then when considering the priesthood, what's a good place to begin? Well, yeah, at the beginning with Adam. So last week, I wasn't talking about the priesthood, but I sort of did a soft kickoff for this class, and we discussed how Adam and then Abraham were the prototype and the paradigm for prophets and kings. So Adam is the prototype. He is the first, he's the first model uh, of the priest, of the prophet and the king, and as we will see tonight, and also of the priest. Abraham is the paradigm. He's the one that's sort of setting the expectations of what a prophet and a king will do. And as we will see later tonight, he is also setting the expectations for what a priest will do. And remember, who is, who is the great prophet, priest, and king? Jesus Christ. So all of these things are pointing 
towards Christ. This is part of that motif that I've been talking about at various times, about how the whole Old Testament is, is screaming Christ in ways that we don't even see. He is, he is present in everything. So in the account of Adam, in the account of Abraham, in the things that they're doing, in things that they're, not, that they're doing that we don't even recognize the first or second or third or tenth time we've read Genesis or Second Samuel or pick your book. Those things are still relentlessly pointing us to Christ. We just have to have the lens through which to see it. So my hope is that over the next several weeks that we'll get some new lenses to, to see things a little more clearly. Because once you see them, you can't unsee them. And that's not to say that they aren't already there and that we're coming up with something new. This is not new. It's just pulling it together in ways that we're not used to. People have been seeing this through for the last couple millennia. So, any questions before we start and move into Adam? No? Okay. Well, then let's, let's talk about Adam. And he obviously is the first man, and he is also the first prophet, the first king, and as we will see, he is the first priest. So, there are, just as there were markers for his kingship and position as prophet, so too are there markers for his priestly role. So, let's, let's take a look at some of those. So, if you go to the second page, and I really tried, I know the notes are a little wonky, but I was really trying to keep this to just a single page front and back and not do my normal like four or six pages. Um, so I hope they're readable. Um, okay, so what is, there's several markers that identify Adam as a priest. What are some of these? So the first one is that Adam is placed in a sanctuary. What's the sanctuary? The Garden of Eden. Now, as we will see, I'm going to talk about it briefly tonight, but in a few weeks, I'm going to devote most of a whole class at looking at how the garden and the tabernacle and the temple are all foreshadowing the throne room of God. So there, And why does that matter when we're talking about priesthood? Well, because that's you know, those are the places where the priests are serving. The priests are serving in the tabernacle. The priests are serving in the temple. So it's, it's worth looking at where they're serving. But the Garden of Eden is also one of these places. So it, it actually, it too is a, a sanctuary where God is encountered. So if you look back on the first page, I've got those two shapes, and I apologize for the crudity of these models. Um, but you can see the, on the left, there's concentric rings. And that is showing the order in which things tighten as you move closer to God in the garden. So you have the outer world, and then you have the garden. And what is at the center of the garden? Yeah, the tree. So it's the tree of the, the, the tree where God and God is He is present there, showing Adam and Eve the, the tree of you know the tree, and they are encountering God in that spot. That is the center of the garden, which is, in a sense, at the center of the world. Now consider for a moment the courtyard, or the, the tabernacle, 
and the temple because they essentially have the same layout. So when we talk about one, we're talking about the other. And there's a similar concentric collapse as you move through the tabernacle and the temple. So you have the outer courtyard, which is analogous to the world. You have the sanctuary or the holy place, which is analogous to the Garden of Eden. And then you have the Holy of Holies, which is analogous to the tree. That is where God is encountered. So just as if you ate from the tree, what happens? You shall what? Die. So too, if, you, if anyone but the high priest, and on only one day, if anyone enters the Holy of Holies, what happens to them? They die. So if they go into the presence of God in a way that is not permitted, which is most ways, then they die. So, but there, and there's a lot of other markers uh, that will will spell out and that show why the temple, tabernacle, why the garden, why all of that is uh, is intended to be a parallel that's foreshadowing the throne room of God. <clears throat> but by placing Adam and Eve in that spot, God has put them in a place where he is going to encounter them. Do we see in, in that Genesis account them encountering God anywhere outside of the garden? No. And where does the presence of God dwell when we have the tabernacle and the temple inside? So, I mean, there, there are strong parallels there. So that's one marker where we see Adam and Eve functioning as priests. They are in the sanctuary. They are in the place where God is encountered. Another is that they are made in the image of God, as we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So man is made in God's image. Now, when Hoyt and I talked about that in our systematic theology class, does that mean that we were made with arms and hands just like God? No, it's you're made in his image. It's it's greater than that. We are his his moral image. We are his spiritual image. We are the image of who he is, not what he is. Is there a better way I could put that, Hoyt? Right. So it's 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 really a representation. We are representatives of him in it's easier to pull this forward than pull this back in the chair forward. So we are representatives in of him in the world. Are there other beings in the world that are made in his image? No. We're it. So what does that imply about his priestly, Adam's priestly role? So in addition to being the king and having dominion over the world, we, Adam I should say, was also in the world representing God. He was the image bearer of God. So where Adam was, God, the image of God, was present. And conversely, Adam is still of this world. And so he, as image bearer of God, was connected to God, and he represented the world before God. So he had a fundamentally priestly role based on his being made in the image of God. <clears throat> and this goes this is true for for Eve as well. I mean it's it's true for both of them. So 
Getting down more into the nitty-gritty, if you want to turn to Genesis 2, uh, 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So those phrases, to work and to keep, Avar and Shamar in Hebrew. Those two words are used primarily in the Old Testament to describe the activity of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. They are to work the tabernacle and keep the tabernacle. So even in the language that's being used for what they are to be doing in the garden, they are given priestly activity. And you can see that. I mean, there's numerous examples. I just gave you Numbers 3.8 is one example of where those words are used to describe the priestly activity. Now, the word keep is often used also to, can be translated or is used with the connotation of guarding something. It's like akin to, we say, Keep safe, you know, you're keeping something. So you're guarding it and you're making it safe. So, and we see that where the, the Levites are, are called guards, which the word there for guards is, is related to that. And there's a lot of examples of that. First Chronicles 9 is one example. But we see that again and again where the Levites are called guards. And it's related to that word shamar for to keep but think about it in the context of Adam. What happened in the garden? Who, who, who snuck in there? Yeah. So did Adam succeed in his priestly role of keeping the garden? No. It's, I mean, his first failure was a priestly failure was he did not guard the garden. He did not keep it. And in, instead of guarding it, he listened to what the offender, the, the invader, had to say. And, I mean, I don't know what he was supposed to do. I mean, he was supposed to go to God immediately and say, hey, we got this guy in here. Probably. Something along those lines. It sounds a little more banal than it should be, I guess, but... You know, his, his failure was a failure of priestly guardianship. And then he failed more as the serpent had opened his mouth and had his way in the garden. And <clears throat> I think that that, yeah, so does that make sense? Any, any questions on that? The priestly aspect of guarding is most theologians think that that comes back to uh, the Levites' defense of Sinai during the Golden Calf episode. Why, you know, were all the tribes were turning away from God and worshiping the calf, but who were the ones that stayed true to God with Moses? The Levites, and they formed a defense of Sinai against the apostasy of the rest of the tribes. And so they, they guarded the way that they were supposed to. So Adam is, you know, many of these things are all, you know, going to be amplified in, in the priestly capacity as we look at the Levitical priesthood, what they're supposed to be doing. So, and then there's, there's other ways that Adam is identified as a priest. One is the garments that, God makes for them in Genesis. The same word that's used for the garments in Genesis is almost nowhere else used except in relation to the garments of the priests when it talks about how the garments are supposed to be made for the, the priestly orders. So it's, it's the same katnat is the word. It, it's the same 
terms. So God is making them priestly garments as they are being kicked out of the garden. So, and then there's, there's more parallels, and we'll get into these more again um, when we look at uh, the tabernacle and the temple. But there's, there's the creation of these echoes uh, the creation of the world. So, for example, if you look at Exodus chapters 25 through 31, there are seven movements in the creation of the tabernacle, and they mirror the seven days of creation in Genesis. So there's a lot of different things that, that really point to Adam as a priest. There's one other that I think is really interesting, and... I'm going to talk about it now, but this, again, as with some of these other things, we're going to develop at greater length when we get there chronologically in Scripture. And that is, if you turn to the genealogy of Luke in chapter 3, it traces the family of Christ through the generations. And it ends in chapter 38. It says, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is identified as the son of God. Is he the firstborn son of God? Well, yeah. So of all the sons... Of all humanity, he's the firstborn. And that's an interesting thing to identify him as, as the Son of God. And he is him being the firstborn of all of God's children. And if you look at Exodus 13.2, now is this, when you go back to Exodus, this is before the crossing of the Red Sea. And they are, the plagues have happened, Passover has been instituted, they haven't even left Egypt yet. And as, on, as they are preparing to leave, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So what, he's, what he is saying is he has claimed those people, the firstborn of Israel, for himself. Just as later he's going to claim, we get to in Numbers three, chapter 3, this is going to come to an end. But God's initial plan was his priesthood was going to be all the firstborn of Israel. Not the Levites, but the firstborn from all the tribes. But because of the apostasy at the golden calf, after the passage through the Red Sea, because of that apostasy, and because of the Levites' loyal defense of Sinai, God is going to shift gears, so to speak. And we'll talk about this when we get to the Levitical priesthood. He is going to adopt the Levites as his own to serve him as priests. But initially, that wasn't the case. It was the firstborn, just as in the, you know, that were supposed to be his priesthood. And Christ... You know, it's interesting that it traces the lineage back to Adam, who is the firstborn. He's the son of God. So he, he is in God's original order and the one that will be restored. He, was, he would have fallen into what God desired for the priesthood, was that firstborn. I don't know if that makes any sense. But it's an interesting concept. So... 
So you take all of this together, the language, the positioning, the tie-ins with other priestly aspects that we're going to develop in more detail as we go. And I think it really is clear that Adam was intended to be a priest of God. Adam and Eve both were intended to be priests and to serve God, to, to be in his presence and to serve him, to work and keep his sanctuary. But they failed. And so then the rest of Scripture unfolds to undo, to lead to the undoing of that sin entering the world. So going forward from this point, we still see people functioning in a priestly capacity. No longer Adam and Eve, but we can see it in a few people. We see it in Cain and Abel, we see it in Seth, and we see it in Noah. So how do Cain and Abel demonstrate their, or especially Abel, demonstrate his priestly role? What's he doing? Yeah, through sacrifice. So this is what I'm saying is that we don't always see it. But the people who offer the sacrifices in Israel are who? The priest. Now, other people can offer sacrifices too, but really you bring the sacrifice to the priest and then they sprinkle the blood of it on the altar. And only the priests can do that. So that offering of sacrifices is a priestly activity. We don't think of Seth or uh, Abel as a priestly activity or doing a priestly activity, but he is. And there's more to be said about what Cain and Abel are doing, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the temple and the tabernacle. But they are offering sacrifices. What about Seth? What is he doing that we see as a priestly activity? If you go back to Genesis... And I forget the book. Um, mm, or the chapter, I should say, not the book. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, no, it's at the end of chapter four. It's verse 26. So, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. But that phrase, to call upon the name of Yahweh, is a priestly activity. And we see that also again and again. One really good example of that is Psalm 99. Verse 6, it says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to, the, to Yahweh and he answered them. So there you see three priests, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, all doing what they're calling upon the name of Yahweh. And again, that's a phrase that you see repeatedly being used to identify an activity that the priests are doing. And then we get to Noah. Yeah. Yeah. So, after his image, so and he is carrying on that, that image-bearer of God role in the world. And it's in the days of Seth that people began to call upon the name of the Lord, that they are functioning as priests in the world. So, and what happens, so the first... 
you know, priest after Adam or first priestly person was Abel, what happened to him? Well, Cain killed him because his sacrifice was insufficient and his heart was hard. And with that act, people, you know, everything goes haywire and violence really consumes the world. But with Seth, there is a, a priestly people that are still calling upon the name of Yahweh. So, which then brings us to Noah. And, you know, what, what is Noah doing that is priestly? Why do we think of Noah as a priest? No, we do not. Not typically. But, he builds an altar and he offers sacrifices on it. And what does it say about the sacrifices that Noah offered? Let's see. Uh, I should have written this down. Um, he says in chapter in ver- chapter eight, verse twenty, it says, "Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird." and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So first of all, you have him building an altar. Priests work at the altar. Not even all the Levites work at the altar. There's Levites, and then there's priests from amongst the Levites. And only the priests could sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices on the altar. Not, all of, not any Levite could do that. But then what does he offer? He offers burnt offerings. Now we just take it for granted because we're just reading this and there it is. But if you go through Leviticus, you will see that burnt offerings are a priestly offering. And what does it say? How did God respond to Noah's priestly offering, his sacrifice? And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. But that, that pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, that's the same language that we will see used elsewhere in Scripture for a priestly offering and ultimately the offering of Christ on the cross. So Noah is functioning, even though it doesn't say, hey, Noah's a priest, here he is offering a sacrifice. We see that same priestly language also present with him. Yes? No, I don't, I don't know of one. Yeah, yeah. The, the spirit, in, in, you know, in, inspired them to, to work in this way. So, but however they come by it, they are functioning in a priestly way. So when we read these things, I mean, again, I don't know how many times I've read the account of Noah in the Bible, and I, you know, before, when I was younger, I never said, "Oh, priest," you know, but. When we see somebody offering a sacrifice or building an altar, we need to have our you know, Bible study antenna go up and say, what's going on here? Why are they doing that? And you'll notice that once we get to the Exodus and the establishment of the Levitical order, that kind of activity, building altars, offering sacrifices is going to condense into a few particular kinds of people. When we see the patriarchs, Abraham's building altars, Abraham's offering sacrifices, Isaac's building altars, Isaac's offering sacrifices, Jacob's building altars, 
Jacob's offering sacrifices. I mean, it just seems like everybody does this. But what it really is, is those few guys are functioning as priests, and then we're going to see the number of people functioning as priests expand after the law is given. Does that make sense? But when we see them doing priestly things, we should say they're doing priestly things. They're not just doing this willy-nilly. So that leads me to then Abraham. So where Adam is the prototype of what a priest is going to do, Abraham is really going to be the paradigm. He is the model of what other priests are going to do. And by the time we get to the end of this, which, you know, it's not going to take too long, you're, what Abraham is going to do, you're going to, it, it's not going to be a big leap to saying, I see how this is really foreshadowing what Christ is going to do. And that's the point. So Christ is the great high priest. And all of these priestly activities are pointing us towards that and towards what we should be doing as a royal priesthood. So let's take a look at what Abraham does. And what's the first thing we know about Abraham, not from the genealogy of him in chapter 11, but in chapter 12? What ha- what's the first thing that happens to Abram in chapter 12? And does what? Yeah. Yeah. Calls him out of his people in his land, right? He, he calls him. And what does that say? What does Hebrews 5, 1 say? For every high priest is taken from among the people and appointed to represent them before God. And then further down, it says, no one assumes this honor on his own initiative, but only when called to it by God. Well, that certainly fits for Abraham. He was called out of a sea of people that had no relationship with Yahweh. Abram was called. Not by any of his doing. He did not appoint himself to this task. He didn't do any of that kind of stuff. God just called him out of the blue. So he certainly fits that model. But then as he moves in his journey to where God has intended him to go, three times we see Abraham build altars. So he is building altars and worshiping. And again, when you see somebody doing a priestly thing, recognize it as such. The construction of an altar is the job of the priest. To work and keep at the altar is the task of the priest. And Abraham does this. And he's going to do it again in a significant way in Genesis 22. And we'll get to that in a minute. But my favorite one of the, the things that Abraham does that is priestly is his intercession for the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he is representing the people before God and interceding on their behalf. And that is the very definition of what a priest does. Christ intercedes on our behalf perpetually. Last week I talked about Abraham as king and how he foreshadows the coming kingship as well. And it's interesting, and we will get to this, and we will talk about this at length. So I'm not trying to just kind of throw some ideas out at you, but I can't do all of the things at once. I kind of have to work my way through them. But they're worth bearing mention now. And that intercessory prayer or dialogue with God that Abram Abraham has, we see that, so he's doing that as a priest. He's an interceding priest. We see the kings of Israel 
who, and we will get to this, are all intended to be priests as well. David and so on are intended to be priests of God. Are they Levites? What are they? Right. So how are they priests? The order of Melchizedek, and we will get to this. But we see David, we see Hezekiah, the, these great kings offering up priestly prayers of intercession. So go to 2 Samuel 24:17. Now David has brought this on his people. So you know, and we can't overlook that fact. But what he prays is still uh, a, 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 a great prayer and a priestly prayer. And he says, so the angel of the Lord is, is plaguing the people because of David's sin with Bathsheba. And David ultimately says, prays though. He says, then David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. He is interceding on behalf of his people, and he is offering a priestly prayer of intercession. And what does he do immediately after that? He builds an altar. And you can't see a prayer, an intercessory prayer like that, and the immediate construction of an altar and see that as anything other than priestly. Again, if there is a priestly activity, it's priestly. So we don't think of David as a priest, but he is. And again, we're going to get to this in much greater detail in a few weeks. But I want you to see how David, as king and as priest, is following in the footsteps of Abraham as king and as priest. And I think the greatest example of that is 2 Chronicles 30, 18 through 20. It's one of my favorite passages. I look for an opportunity to bring it up every chance I get, so you've already heard me talk about it. But it's when Hezekiah is reinstituting temple worship and Passover in Israel after the long apostasy of Ahaz, his father, and there's so many people that have come to celebrate the Passover that they don't have enough priests to sanctify everybody. And yet they eat the Passover meal anyway. And it says, For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, which is important because the northern kingdom has just been wiped out. And so these are people from the northern kingdom who are now coming down to Jerusalem after centuries of, of neglecting it, and they are making themselves right with God at the Passover. But they haven't been sanctified by priests because there aren't enough priests to sanctify as many people as are coming to repent before God. And it says, Yet they ate the Passover. Uh, they had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For, and listen to this. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God and Yahweh, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And that is Hezekiah offering a high priestly prayer on behalf of his people, interceding for them, because in, they're righteous in their heart, or they were seeking righteousness in their hearts, and God healed them. Just as this is foreshadowed by Abraham interceding for the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does it say in chapter 19, I think it is, in Genesis? Let's go back. Chapter 19, uh, let's see, 
I should have written this down too. Um, in chapter in verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Abraham's priestly intercession with God. God remembers Abraham just as God hears Hezekiah and heals the people or saves Lot. You see the connection? Abraham is foreshadowing the priestly activity that is to come and ultimately foreshadowing what? Yeah. Yeah. So how else do we see this foreshadowed in Abraham? Well, chapter 22. What happens in chapter 22? He almost sacrifices his son. How? He builds an altar. Where does he build an altar? Which is where... What happens later on Mount Moriah? What? Mm, it's where the temple's built. So the place where the temple will be built is the place where Abraham builds an altar and is about to sacrifice his only begotten son. But ultimately, God will send a substitute to pay to, for that sac- to, to be that sacrifice. And what does Abraham do? But he then, his son is spared, but he then offers up burnt sacrifices. So this whole endeavor in Genesis 22, which is a powerful foreshadowing of the cross, is a priestly endeavor. And we can't overlook that. So, and lastly, regarding Abraham, what's he called in the song? You know, Father Abraham. I mean, well, he's the father of what? Of nations. And, and he is the father. How, do, how did he know he was going to be that? God promised. He made a covenant with Abraham. And it's through Abraham that God's covenant is mediated. And that mediation of the covenant is a distinctly priestly activity. As when we'll get into Leviticus, we'll see real, you know, the nuts and bolts of of how covenant mediation is a priestly role. So Abraham is serving as a priest and functioning as a priest, even though he is not called a priest, all the things that he is doing are pointing forward to Christ, the great high priest. So, I mean, when we read Abraham's story, you know, it's easy to get lost in all of the events that happen. But if you can kind of, you know, put your lenses on, it's like, One, you can put on your covenant lens, then you can put on your prophet lens, then you can put on your king lens and see the same story with different things all being foreshadowed and the paradigm for what is to come being established. And lastly, you can put on your, or firstly for that matter, you can put on your priest lens and see how Abraham is is being set up as the model for priests to come. And whether it's in his covenant mediation, in the sacrificing, in the intercession, in all of those things and more, we see that he really is, as others will be, a foreshadow of Christ, the great high priest. So, with Adam 
and with Abraham, we're getting a picture of what's to come. Where does this end? Well, it ends with Christ as the great high priest, but it also ends with an order of priests all under him and serving him. Who is that? Us, the believers. We are the royal priesthood. We call that the priesthood of the believer. That's one name for it. But biblically, we would say we are royal priests under the high priest, under the king. So, and, and what do we do with that? Well, as we go through this class over the next few weeks and we see all the things that priests are supposed to do, each of those things, when I say priests, I mean throughout the Old Testament, setting the model, what God has done in the past is what? A model and a promise for what he will do in the future. Bank that one. Put that one in the bank. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. What God has done with the priesthood in the Old Testament is a model and a promise for what is to be done with and for the priesthood and the great high priest in the future. And ultimately where I want to end this is what do we do with this in our lives today here in Mount Shasta? What do we do with this as members of a royal priesthood? As priests of the Most High God, what do we do? So we'll get there. So I will end with that tonight. We've got about 10 minutes. I'm happy to take questions or discuss other things. Uh, next week, who is the great priest from Abraham's story that we left out? Yeah. Next week, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. So, and we'll talk about, also to a lesser degree, Isaac and Jacob as priests and a few other things. But Melchizedek is essential. So, any questions? I must have done a perfect job. Yes. So that, that is an axiom of biblical exegesis, just the understanding of Scripture. And that, the, the, the saying goes, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So we see this throughout the whole Old Testament. Um, just talking about like Hezekiah and his high priestly prayer and how he is functioning as a priest interceding with his people. That is a model and a promise for another one who is to come that will do that perfectly. The way that Abraham is functioning as a priest or as a king or as a prophet, I mean, all of those things he is doing, is a model and a promise for one who will do so perfectly. Uh, the, the exodus, I mean, I mean in, I'm just picking some things here. We could go through everything in the Old Testament. And we could go through things in the New Testament and look forward to what is yet to come and see how these things are all models and promises for what, God has done and, and is going to do. The Exodus is, I mean, it, it, it says it even explicitly in the New Testament. The Exodus is a prefiguring of, you know, of baptism and of Christ being in the grave for three days. It's that passage of, you know, through the darkness and coming out clean on the other side. The Exodus itself, the passage of the Red Sea, is, is, is a model and a promise for what God is going to do in the future. So too is, you know, the crossing of the, of the Jordan under Joshua. Do they, you know, God stops these waters and they cross. Do they get their feet dirty? They come out clean on the other side. 
And that too is looking forward to Christ and, his, and the resurrection, where it is a model and a promise for what he is going to do in the future. All of these things, the whole Old Testament, is that. So, you know, when it says that they, you know, like on the road to Emmaus and how Christ, you know, talked about them, how the scriptures revealed him, you know, it, there are layers upon layers upon layers of how the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus Christ. You know, I think when we, when we, when we hear the statement that the Old Testament, you know, Christ is present in the Old Testament, I know when I was younger, I always thought, oh, well, you know, there's some prophecies in Isaiah and, you know, a few other things like that. Well, no, it's everything. Like all the stuff we just talked about tonight is all pointing to Christ. Everything. I mean, and that's just with the priestly lens. We could go with a lot of other different lenses that are pointing to different aspects of who Christ is and what he's going to do. So, again, when you read the Bible, especially when you read the Old Testament, keep that in mind. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So, any other questions? No? Any? Go for it. Yeah. I think a lot of those beasts were intended as sacrifices and other ways of service to God, probably. But God was claiming that for him. I mean, he was claiming what was his. He wanted those for his service. Whatever that service was, you know, it wasn't like, you know, some wealthy guy from the tribe of Ephraim was going to donate his oxen to move all the parts of the tabernacle. God had claimed for himself what was his. A lot of it was probably for sacrifices too, though. But that, that is never elaborated in great detail because no sooner does God say that than they cross the Red Sea. Then what do they do? They apostate, they're apostates. They start worshiping the calf. While Moses is up on the mountain with, you know, encountering God and getting, you know, and talking to him, down below the people are worshiping a created thing instead of the creator. So they're, they're making an idol, so, except for the Levites. And it's because of that that the Levites will be set aside for God's service rather than the firstborn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or even this part of Genesis or this part of Isaiah. It's the whole thing. And it's, it's, it's these layers of things that we don't even think about are all compressed in on each other and still pointing all in unison pointing to Christ. So it's pretty amazing how it all fits together perfectly. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. So, okay, well, I hope I've at least uh, wet your whistle a little bit and you'll want to know more about the priesthood. Uh, we will get to a point where it's like, what do we do with this today? But we gotta, we got to earn our... Earn your turns. So we'll, we'll get there. So, okay, I will close us now. <clears throat>
Lord, thank you for giving us your word, for revealing yourself so powerfully on every page and in every word in ways that we don't even see until we see it and then we can't unsee it, in ways that make us marvel at how it all fits together. How did we not recognize you in this before, but you are present in all of it? I thank you that you are being pointed to relentlessly. I pray that you will help us to understand more, to to understand who you are, what you are, what we are in your eyes, how we can serve you and your kingdom. Give us hearts that long for that, hearts to serve you faithfully. Help us to be your royal priests. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, the great high priest, the great shepherd of the sheep, and in the power of your Spirit. Amen.